Welcome to Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. Early Christians appropriated the scriptures of Judaism and made them their own. They read those scriptures as predicting the coming of Jesus as God's Messiah, and they thought of their movement as a sort of fulfillment of God's revelation through Judaism. Of course, ancient Jews who did not buy into the Jesus movement did not see fulfillment in this situation, but rather competition and apostasy. Thus, Jews have generally not shown a lot of interest in studying the Christian scriptures, the 27 books of the New Testament. They are content to remain with what one of my Jewish friends calls my current testament, that is to say, the Jewish Bible, roughly what Christians call the Old Testament. Interactions between Jewish and Christian scholars have tended to be polemical, with one side trying to refute the other, and historically many times the Jewish side was justifiably nervous that the argument could end in persecution. But a few years ago, a collection of Jewish scholars did something that would have been unthinkable in previous ages. They published a scholarly edition of the Christian New Testament featuring copious notes by Jewish New Testament scholars. One of the two who spearheaded this effort is my guest today. I had the privilege of interviewing her on a dark and stormy day at her home in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Amy Jill Levine is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. Her books include The Misunderstood Jew, The Meaning of the Bible, and Short Stories by Jesus. She's here with us to talk about a unique book that she co-edited with Mark Brettler of Duke University. It's called The Jewish Annotated New Testament. Dr. Levine, welcome to Thinking About Religion. It's a pleasure to be with you. Congratulations on the success and now the second edition of this book. (laughs) And now we worry that Oxford will come after us in another 10 years and say, please do a third. The Jewish Annotated New Testament, for both me and my co-editor, Mark Brettler, took a number of years out of our lives, but we think we've come up with a pretty good product. There isn't really anything like it out there. I mean, it's kind of like having a little rabbi on your shoulder, constantly chiming in as you're, (laughs) here's a quote from the Mishnah, here's a quote from the Babylonian Talmud, constantly comparing and contrasting New Testament material with other ancient Jewish material. I'm not a rabbi, Um, and and I don't actually think of this as as a rabbi sort of thing. I think it's more like there's a person who's very, very knowledgeable about Jewish history and Jewish texts, but also Jewish art and Jewish literature, who's here to provide any New Testament reader a more fulsome sense of how the text took shape in the first place, as well as how Jews through the centuries have understood it, both for good and for ill. Not necessarily a rabbi, but a very learned Jewish person. Yes, a very learned Jewish person. There's really a whole gang of them, of course. (laughs) About 70 of us, yes. Wow, 70. And the essays in the back, which by my calculation are about 22% of the pages, I mean, that's almost like a whole education on Jewish-Christian history and relations. There's so much packed into each one of those. Uh, They're all done by specialists. Well, we added about 30 to the original uh, publication because people would write to us and say, but we want to know more about Jewish reception history. We want to know more about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We want to know more about Jewish family life or gender and sexuality. So give us more information. And Mark and I rounded up more Jews who had expertise in this material and said, can you give us an essay? And they said, sure. Now, there's an old saying, I believe it's probably a Jewish saying, two Jews, three opinions. You just told me you had about 70 of them. Right. We did not always agree with the people who were writing in. So we as editors had to make decisions. Can we abide by this point, even if we don't agree with it? 
But we work by academic standards, and we recognize that historians do not all agree, and literary critics do not all agree, and surely Jews do not all agree. So what we have in this text is a range of opinion, but these are viable opinions and not wacko ones. How do you even start to form an editorial stance there? I mean, how do you decide what's too not mainstream or too controversial in a scholar's opinion? <laughs> the same way I would do it if I were grading a paper or responding to a seminar presentation. The first question is, how do you know this? What is your evidence for the claim that you're making? And second, why does anybody care about this particular claim? But Mark and I also added a third concern. We are working here with somebody else's sacred scripture. So we insisted that everything be done with respect for the text and respect for the people who hold that text sacred. I want to start at the beginning because I imagine someone, just a member of the public who doesn't know about these areas of scholarship might just kind of look at the book cover and say, you know, how can outsiders, people who are not Christians, come along and tell Christians something about how to understand their own scriptures? Mm -hmm. But in fact, I mean, I imagine that more than 90% of your readers are Christians, or at least people interested in Christianity. So how do you address that kind of general concern? I don't know the statistics in terms of who is reading this book. I mean, somebody purchases a book on Amazon. Amazon does not say, uh, by the way, what church do you go to or are you Jewish? Right. I do know actually a number of Jewish readers are using this book. It's being used in some synagogues for study sessions. It's being used in interfaith contexts as well as Christian study, whether church-based or personal or used by clergy in the preparation of sermons, which I think would be great. I'm a Jew and I teach New Testament, and my primary job is to teach people who want to be Christian ministers how to proclaim the gospel. That's a weird job for a Jew. But in looking at the New Testament, this is also Jewish history. It's not simply the possession of the church. Jesus was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. All the Marys were Jewish. James was Jewish. Peter was Jewish. So in doing New Testament study, I'm actually recovering Jewish history. That's part one. Part two is that the New Testament and its interpretation has substantially influenced Jewish history over the centuries. Whether positively someone reads Paul's epistle to the Romans chapters 9 through 11, where Paul talks about the positive Jewish covenant and how that prevails, or somebody reads Matthew 25, 27, where Matthew depicts all the people, that's what the Greek says, pasolaos, all the people say, his blood be on us and on our children. And that has led to everything from the ghettoization of Jews to the murder of Jews. So this is Jewish history. It's something Jews should know. And that intertwined history of Jewish reception and Christian reception, I think, is something Christians should know as well. So with so many Jewish scholars in these fields available now, and given that it is part of Jewish history, why not start with a from-scratch translation and build on that? Was it something <laughs> that you discussed at any point? Yeah, we did, as a matter of fact, but we wanted this to be a study Bible. And study Bibles are usually Bibles that are familiar to other people, and Oxford University Press had access to the New Revised Standard Version. So we thought, we'll give people the text with which they are comfortable, with which they are familiar. And Oxford has a number of study Bibles, uh, including now the, the Oxford Annotated 5th Edition. So we thought we would use a model that already works, and we would not burden our contributors by asking them to do a new translation. Translations are really hard. But what we did say is, if you think this translation is incorrect, you get to put in a footnote saying how you would read it otherwise. 
Was there a different commenter for each book? Yes. <laughs> I mean, in a few cases, we were able to double up. But um, in the second edition, I think every single book in the New Testament has a separate commentator. Why did Jewish scholars for the first time produce a book like this in 2011 instead of 1911 or 1611? What's yeah. changed? That never would have happened. Indeed, I think 10 years earlier, the Jewish annotated New Testament would not have happened. There are a couple of factors to consider. First of all, we have a critical mass of Jews who are competent to look at this material, both in terms of its own historical context and in terms of reception history. So we have Jews looking at the portrait of Jesus in the Talmud. We have work on how Paul has been understood through the centuries, how the Virgin Mary has been understood through the centuries. We have Jews who are art historians who could look at Jews who were using Christian images in art. We might think of the painter Marc Chagall, for example. We also have the courage of Oxford University Press who thought, yes, we think this is now timely. I think we had a a greater sense of public interest. From the 1970s on, the idea of Jesus as a Jew has taken hold in some facets of Christian study. And even now, when I go into churches and I point out, look, if you think Jesus is important, which I think people in churches ought to think, then you probably want to know as much about him as possible. And to understand Jesus, you need to understand his Jewish context. And the same thing for Paul. So it was timely. The people competent to do the annotations were available, and Oxford was wise enough to contract the book. I liked how in some of the uh, supplementary essays, the scholars just openly talked about some of the traditional Jewish criticisms of Jesus during the Talmud and so on, and just Mm -hmm. kind of summarized those. I mean, in some of these earlier ages, these are not things that would have been publicly talked about, right? I mean, weren't these things (laughs) self-censored or even... They're still not, not publicly talked about. I mean, it's it's not as if every Jew has a copy of the Talmud in the house. Yeah, uh, you know, and any more than a Presbyterian would have, you know, Calvin's Institutes, or your average Methodist would have a copy of the Book of Discipline, let alone the you know the complete works of Karl Barth. So most Jews don't know what the Talmud says about Jesus because most Jews don't know what the Talmud says. We are all Jewish, Christian, whoever, generally ignorant of our own history. We tend to ignore the parts of our history that are problematic or that might make us look in a negative light. Similarly, I think most Christians are unaware of the horrible things that some of the church fathers or Martin Luther, for example, have said about Jews. If we are to have honest relationships between Jews and Christians, we need to know both the places that we share and the events that we can celebrate, and we also need to know the difficult stuff. We've all got baggage. Indeed, we do. (laughs) In your work, you distinguish between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. So what's the difference between those two things? It's a common scholarly differentiation. Anti-Judaism means you just don't like the way Jews do their theology or Jews do their practice. But an anti-Jewish person might say, well, gee, as long as the Jew becomes baptized and starts worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior, then everything is just peachy keen. An anti-Semite classifies Jews as a race, and it wouldn't matter what the Jew believes or how the Jew practices. So we think about Nazi Germany, for example, that would be anti-Semitic. The Nazis didn't care whether you were a Carmelite nun or a Hasidic rabbi. If you had one grandparent who was Jewish, we're going to kill you. That's anti-Semitism. Do the two bleed over one into the other? Sure. But I think it would be inappropriate to look at the New Testament as anti-Semitic. I mean, that would be bizarre. 
but one could legitimately look at certain passages in the New Testament and say, yeah, that's anti-Jewish. It's a core part of many books in the New Testament, I think, you know, basically criticizing uh, the Jews in Jerusalem of Jesus's day for not accepting him as Messiah. I mean, does that count as anti-Jewish? It's not just the Jews in Jerusalem, it's the Jews in Galilee. Yeah. Uh, which is why Jesus can say, like, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. The Galilean mission seems, seems not to have worked very well. And we know that Jesus' followers regroup and base themselves in Jerusalem rather than in Nazareth or Capernaum. So what happens is the majority of Jews reject proclamations by Jesus, and then after his death, proclamations about Jesus. Is the text anti-Jewish? You know, it actually depends upon who you ask and how one defines what constitutes anti-Judaism. For the vast majority of my Christian friends and my Christian students, they do not read the text as anti-Jewish because they see anti-Judaism to be a sin, and for them the text is divinely inspired, and therefore the text by definition cannot be anti-Jewish. What I find more helpful is to say the text has been interpreted over the centuries in an anti-Jewish manner. Here's what that anti-Jewish interpretation looks like. If you are proclaiming this text as the word of God, don't go there. A lot of Christians, I think, nowadays think they have a kind of easy answer to charges of anti-Judaism, even for some of these notorious passages, you know, let his blood be on our children, or Mm -hmm. uh, in John, Jesus calling the people he's arguing with, quote, the Jews, uh, children of the devil. Mm -hmm. John 8. The easy answer is just, they can't be read as blaming all Jews at all times for the death of Jesus or being, you know, the spawn of Satan, because it's, they're all in a Jewish context written by Jews and for Jews, something like that. But I get the impression from your work that, no, that's not good enough. That's, that's too easy. That's, uh... Oh, it's not only too easy, it may be historically inaccurate. How so? We do not know exactly who wrote the Gospels. The names of the Gospel authors are put in later. And we do not know to whom the texts were written. So if we simply say these are books written by Jews for Jews, what we wind up doing weirdly is blaming the Jews for this anti-Jewish literature. So whose fault is it? If it is anti-Jewish, it becomes the Jewish fault. Look, this is this dirty little secret in New Testament studies. So we read a gospel, we determine the audience of the gospel on the basis of the internal contents, and then we read the gospel in light of this community we've just reconstructed. <laughs> You're a philosopher, you know, this is called a circular argument. And it really doesn't work very well. John may be writing to all followers of Jesus. Matthew may be writing to all followers of Jesus. And for those followers of Jesus, after having read, say, the Gospel of John, where the word eudaios, the Greek term, normally translated Jew, shows up 70 or 71 times, depending upon your manuscript tradition, and almost always in a negative sense, you, the reader, might come to conclude that anybody who identifies as a eudaios is my enemy. And I don't want to have anything to do with that person. So these historical explanations, we don't know if they're true. They are a tad facile. And they don't account for how the text was read by its earliest receivers. And those would be the church fathers, as far as we can trace out in terms of of literature. And we know that the church fathers are really not happy with Jews. And that goes back as early as Ignatius, probably the first receiver we have of the Gospel of Matthew. When thinking about Religion Returns, I asked Dr. Levine about the reaction to this book from Jewish readers.
Dr. Levine, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of feedback about this book from your Jewish readers. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what in your view are the most interesting positive and negative reactions from your Jewish readers? <laughs> Mostly I've been delighted <laughs> because people write in, have written to me and said things like, I always wanted to read this, but I, I could never get into it. Like it starts with a genealogy and I didn't know what was going on. And now I understand what's going on. Or I always wanted to understand what my who this Jesus was or who Mary was or what Paul was doing. I've always thought the New Testament was anti-Jewish, and now I understand how complicated making that claim is. Yeah, it might be, but it might not be. The first review we got on Amazon years ago when the first edition came out, or one of the first reviews, was from some fellow who said, this is a proselytizing stealth text that is written by Jews who want us all to believe in Jesus, and it's this <laughs> messianic front, and you should stop doing such things. And of course, I would never buy such a book. <laughs> I wonder how the review actually showed up on Amazon. And we thought, how could you make such claims without actually reading the book itself? I've gotten some blowback from more conservative Jews uh, who are saying, why are you spending your time looking at the New Testament? Why aren't you looking at your own Jewish sources? <laughs> to which I say, yeah, but it is a Jewish source because it's influenced Jewish history. But for the most part, from Jews, from Christians across the board, and from atheists, we've gotten some very, very positive responses. But again, we're trying to be respectful and we're trying to be fair. But there are some places in the commentary where the commenters are basically trying to gently correct some Christian interpretations of various statements. So, for instance, somebody points out that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sounds like he's just a subordinationist. He thinks Jesus is, is a lesser being than God mm -hmm. and, you know, permanently subservient to God. And this is in contrast to, you know, the view from the fourth century and beyond that, you know, that they're one in essence. Where at the end of Matthew, the commenter points out that, you know, really first century Christian theology isn't Trinitarian, properly speaking. To me, these are quite gentle pushes. But have you got any pushback from Christian uh, theologians or Christian biblical scholars about these kind of corrections? I would not use the term corrections. I would use the term, here's how I understand what Paul is saying, or here's how I understand what Matthew is saying. So the issue is not to correct some Nicene creedal statement. I think most Christian theologians, at least in the quarters where I work, are well aware that Christian theology develops over time. It's not that Trinitarian theology emerges full bloom from the pen of the writer of Matthew or from the writer of John. We recognize what happens at Nicaea. We recognize that the Nicene Creed actually comes out on a split vote. So even at that time, Christian theologians are still trying to work out exactly how among the what are typically called the persons, which is already a problematic term, the persons of the Trinity fit together. The orientation of the commentary is basically historical, right? Correct. It's how would these things have been intended originally? Um, intention is always a problematic term, because how do you get into the author's head? And then you, you risk that circular argument again. So you read the text and you say, I think this is what the author intended. Mm -hmm. It's actually easier to try to determine, based on what we know about people living in the first century, what a first century hearer would have gotten out of the text. So, what somebody in Corinth thinking upon having Paul's first epistle or second epistle to the Corinthians being read, and already we're open to multiple interpretations because a slave in Corinth may hear something very, very differently than a wealthy person in Corinth. 
But if the author's competent, that's how you figure out what they meant. One would hope. But the author also presumes that the reader can bring something to the text to fill in the gaps. Even if you look at something that's quite creedal in the New Testament, like the Christ hymn in Philippians, and I think this is traditional material that Paul has, has inserted into the text, he talks about the Christ figure being in the form of God and, and not grasping onto that form, but self-emptying, the Greek term here is kenosis, and taking the form of a slave, eventually being returned to that divine status, but everything is to the greater glory of God the Father. Well, if everything is to the greater glory of God the Father, rather than to the greater glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we have something that's not quite along the lines of three persons being entirely equal. Does that make Trinitarian theology wrong? Not at all. One can find inchoate in the New Testament what eventually becomes Trinitarian theology, just as one can find inchoate in the New Testament what becomes Catholic and Orthodox Mariology or Pentecostal pneumatology. In other words, the text gives rise to developed teaching, and that's in fact what the Gospel of John says the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. If we just remained with the New Testament and did not have anything developed after, or all playing first century Bible land, people will bring their own concerns, their own theological values, their own experiences to bear on how they understand the text, and that's how Christian theology develops. That's terrific. Whether or not the development is terrific or how much development there is depends on the Christian, how much they're going to agree with that. So if you come along and say, or any scholar comes along and says, uh, well, originally this would have been understood this way, not the way that you're taking it. Mm -hmm. Explain why this is a bigger deal to a lot of Protestants than it would be, say, to a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox yeah. Christian. Right. And here, weirdly, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, as well as Anglicanism, function along the same lines as Judaism. That is, there's, there's a sense of ongoing textual study that provides new revelation. Um, whether it's the Talmud for Jews or the Catholic Magisterium or the teachings of the Church Fathers and then moving on, as opposed to a, a very strict definition of Protestant, like sola scriptura, I'm only going to look at the New Testament. That's the only thing that's going to influence me. But everybody's got to figure out how to deal with it, how to interpret it. So if we say the text only has one singular meaning, and that's the Protestant meaning, my next question is, which Protestant are we talking about? Because I can just go down the streets of Nashville and point out half a dozen different Protestant churches within half a mile, and they are not all going to agree on what the New Testament says, let alone what it means. Mm -hmm. And then we also have to worry about translation. Sure. I wonder if there's a little bit of a Jewish-Christian difference about how comfortable one is with what look like internal contradictions between scriptural books. So uh, when I read the Jewish Study Bible, edited by your colleague and, mm -hmm. and another person. Mark Brettler and Adele Berlin. Yeah, another very interesting book. Spent a lot of time reading that one as well. They're very comfortable talking about the arguments between Deuteronomy and Exodus. Mm -hmm. And these were probably written or edited through a pretty large course of time, mm -hmm. arguably. Christian scriptures are a little different. I mean, it looks like the authorship was crammed into about, what, 50 years? Yeah, 50 to 100. Yeah, but definitely not more than 100, Don't arguably. So. And it's just a much smaller circle of people. I mean, even despite the differences between Paul and Peter and so on, I mean, it's kind of a cabal of people that knew each other uh, to a large extent. <laughs> even even if you you don't, you don't agree with the traditional authors and so on, you don't think Matthew wrote Matthew and whatnot, but it might, it might have to do with different views about divine inspiration as well. 
Oh, look, uh, the Gospels have contradictions. You know, and I tell my students, look, Matthew has Matthew's story to tell, and John has John's story to tell, and they don't regard Jesus the same way. And by the way, neither does the book of Revelation, the epistle to the Hebrews, or or, or uh, First Corinthians. Is this a problem? No! Why should the divine only be experienced in one way by one person? What the New Testament text does is just what the Hebrew Scriptures do, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is here are different ways of understanding who you are as a people, and here are different ways of how these particular people understood their Lord. That's fine. I tend to take the the differences in the Gospels, these various perspectives on Jesus, as an invitation to readers today to answer Jesus' own question, who do you think that I am? Am I the Mathean Jesus, or am I the Johannine Jesus, or am I the sling lamb, or the warrior on the white horse, or the high priest serving at the heavenly altar? I got choices here. Once you get apart from the Christian inerrancy crowd, right, that there can't be any error in the originals, which of course are long Mm -hmm. gone. (laughs) Once you set aside that, even uh, apart from that, there's still a strong drive for a lot of Christian interpreters to try to harmonize kind of the basic just of teaching about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. in the New Testament writings. And, and what you're saying is, well, I just think that's really wrong-headed. No, I didn't say that. I am not saying that, that attempts to harmonize are wrong-headed. Attempts to harmonize are simply one way of many by which to understand the text. I think if one erases the distinctions, one loses some of the richness of the text. That's unfortunate. But harmonizers have their own agenda, uh, and I don't want to say that's a, a bad agenda. That's their particular concern. One can certainly harmonize the text that we find in the scriptures of Israel, which is how rabbinic Judaism manages to do what it does. It says, well, you know, here's a majority opinion, here's a minority opinion, but we're going to keep talking about this over time. And eventually we might conclude that uh, maybe we can reemphasize something here or de-emphasize something there. I think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Revelation, the author of Hebrews, and so on, all have something distinct to say. I wouldn't want to to wash out all those lovely distinctions. I can also easily point out that over time, the same text has been understood differently by Christians, even within a line that Protestants might accept. Uh, How Calvin read a text is not necessarily how somebody in the local Presbyterian church is going to read that text. How Stoner Campbell understood a text is not the same thing that somebody in either the Church of Christ or the Disciples of Christ might understand that text. Because if one wants to make the claim that God is still speaking, which I think Protestants do, then why are we presuming that it's going to be the same message all the way through? It's not that they think it has to be the same, it's that they think it has to be logically consistent, at least in the core, uh, if right. not in and, the details. And all this historical stuff is logically consistent. It might not fully agree, but that doesn't prevent it from being logically consistent. That's American history. Sure. Anybody doing history runs into conflicting sources, and then it's the historian's job to kind of decide which one to prefer or to be skeptical about which one's right. Right. Or how you how you teach American history to people in the fourth grade mm-hmm. should not be how you teach American history to people in graduate school. <laughs> um, how you teach American history, if you happen to be living in Japan or England or Puerto Rico, might actually be different than how you teach American history if you happen to be living in California or Canada, because you might emphasize different aspects of that study. You know, might material look like it's in contradiction? It might. It might, in fact, be. But it doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. It means you're coming at the text from your own particular perspective. And all history is somehow a dialogue 
between the questions that you, the individual historian, bring to the text and the answers that you gain from that text. When Thinking About Religion returns, we discuss clashing interpretations of the New Testament and the idea of faith. As far as Christian differences in interpreting these various New Testament passages, this is something that not a lot is said on, I think, in the commentary. Uh, It's occasionally mentioned, but Christians are incredibly disputatious and uh, concerned with all the fine points and and ready to declare each other heretics and so on. And, And you're aware, I'm sure, that there's kind of a canon within the canon. Christians that are interested in theology and that are somewhat conservative you know, they focus way more on John 1, Philippians 2, mm-hmm. John 8, John 10, etc. <laughs> They're going to pick up a book like this and say, what do the Jewish scholars these days say about all these disputes that we have? Or even something like Romans chapter 9, mm-hmm. the Calvinists ver- and the Augustinians versus everybody else. The uh, commenters here don't get into that. I mean, was that just an impossible task to try to deal with all the Christian factions and sort of different uh, angles? We have a splendid essay by a professor at U California Berkeley named Daniel Boyarn on the Logos hymn in the Gospel of John and the origins of Christology and questions of Trinitarianism, or more likely, bitheism, the idea of a two-god. In light of what John says, and what Boyarn does is read John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, as a Jewish hymn related to the Jewish idea of wisdom, which eventually becomes in rabbinic literature the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of the divine. So we do, in fact, get into some of these concerns, and we do talk about theology, but that's not all we talk about. So here's the problem of what questions does one bring to a text. If you approach the text as an historian, which most of us did, the questions that we will ask will be different than if you approach the text as a theologian, Mm -hmm. which most of us are not. Mm But we do, in fact, have an article on Jesus in terms of Trinitarianism, and this is a new article for the second edition. How does the Trinity develop? How do we understand that? We now have an article on sacramental concerns, like baptism and Eucharist, because the first edition did not do what our readers thought was a sufficient treatment of theological questions. We've attempted to address that in the second edition. Some of the readers uh, thought there weren't enough on some of these uh topics of Christian controversy. Or not so much even Christian controversy, but the questions came in from Jews saying, gee, explain to us the Trinity. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I'm a biblical scholar, that's above my pay grade. How long Um, do you have? You know, explain to us what baptism is, explain to us what this communion Eucharist thing is. And we thought that's a very, very good idea. We should put that in. But again, we tended to approach these questions as historians. How was this material understood at such and such a time in history? And then go to what gets said at Nicaea or go to what gets said at Chalcedon and so on. But we are not, by the way, telling Christians what to believe. That's between the individual Why not? It's fun. (laughs) I don't want to tell people what to believe because I don't think faith— I'm talking about belief in terms of faith. 
as in faith in the Trinity or faith in the Incarnation or faith in the Resurrection. It is not my job as a biblical studies professor, let alone as a human being, to tell somebody else what to believe. I think belief is like love, and you no more tell people what to believe than you tell them whom to love. But what I can do is say, if you claim belief in this material, I can give you more historical background. I can tell you how how robust your tradition is. I can tell you how it's been understood over time or understood differently. In the same way that if you fall in love, you want to know as much as possible about the object of your love. Like, where did you go to elementary school? And should I meet your parents? And what's your favorite food? You want to know the object of your love, but my job is not to tell you whom to love or how to love. This is something that made me curious as a philosopher of religion, your views on faith. What is faith? Why is it important? What do you mean by faith? I mean, faith could just mean, in some Christian context, like agreement to certain propositions. Or for some people, it could mean trust in God. But I, I, I suspect that by faith, you mean something that might apply across many religions, yeah, well, I even think I've non-theistic just, right, ones. I, I think I've just defined faith in light of Christian concerns, like belief in uh, the resurrection of Jesus, belief that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, belief that uh, Jesus will return to judge the quick and the dead, as the saying goes. Faith changes definition even if you look at the New Testament. For Paul, faith is trust, the faith of Jesus, that Jesus was willing to trust God so much that he was willing to give up his life. And then we get to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and it's the faith, and you could probably list it on a page and say, check this one off, check this one off, check this one off. So, you're correct, the definition of faith changes over time. For me, faith is something that's theologically rooted. It's not something that you determine. Um, I don't think Pascal's wager works. I think I'll believe this because otherwise I might go to hell. I think, again, faith is like love. And people fall in love because they fall in love. There's no logic to it. You just know that it's true. So, are matters of faith then not, not something that it really makes any sense to argue about? One might want to argue about the particulars. Uh, If your faith is based on a particular text, then you might want to argue about how that particular text is to be interpreted. Or you might say, rather than argue about it, because again, I find theological arguments just plain tedious. You might want to say, you know, if you believe in this, then how does that cash out in terms of how you behave? I find that a really interesting question. So if you believe that God takes on human form, does that lead you to conclude that the human body is something of enormous value? And if you do, then are you worried about things like health care or what your cholesterol count is or whether people have clean water? If you believe in resurrection of the dead, are you taking care of corpses? Do you worry about that? Do you worry about how they pile up? Do you feel a sense of hope along with a sense of absence if a loved one has died? In other words, I'm interested in how those beliefs, that faith, manifests in one's own action. This goes back to the old Jesus statement about you know them by their fruits. It's a very Jewish way of saying things. But people will have different theologies in the same way that people will have different types of love. Roman Catholic theology is not the same thing as Eastern Orthodox theology, is not Presbyterianism or Methodism or Calvinism or whatnot. That's up to individual Christians to determine, and we might not have the answers to any of that stuff, you know, until Jesus comes back. That's not an argument that's my argument. I don't want to get into it. What I want to do is say, if you believe in Jesus, or if you believe in God, or if you believe in the sacred scripture of whatever, how does it make you act, or how should it make you act? That, to me, is the more important question. Christian missionaries uh, will on occasion write to me, 
and say, you know, have you considered, you know, as if I if I haven't been exposed to some of these concerns mm-hmm. over the past 50 years or so. Have you not read? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you only read Isaiah 53 or if you only read Isaiah 7 or if you only read Zechariah, you would understand to which I can, you know, if, if I wanted to take the time, I could easily say, oh, by the way, all of these texts have their own Jewish reception history, and here's how the Jewish community has understood these texts over time. So, if you want to read the Scriptures of Israel, your Old Testament, through Christian lenses, I think it's entirely appropriate that you find Jesus on every page, because that's what a Christian reading would be. It's part of your Bible, too. But if you read the text through rabbinic lenses or through Jewish lenses, more broadly speaking, you will not find Jesus on every page, but you will find rabbinic interpretation, glosses, backstories, interpretations that help us understand how to enact these particular texts as we go over time. So the reason I find theological arguments, I didn't say they were boring, I said they were tedious. Um, <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> the, the difference is that boring is just, okay, why, this is just kind of boring. I find them tedious because I've heard all the arguments before, and I don't think they go anywhere, and I don't think that the enterprise of attempting to convert somebody else works very well. And the easiest way of displaying this to some of my Christian friends is to say, you know, would you like to spend a day with a person who belongs to a Christian group but is not yours, so that you can have this person in this different Christian communion explain to you why their view was right and your view was wrong? You know, why should the Methodists pay attention to the Presbyterian in terms of things like polity or how to do the Eucharist? Would you like to have Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, or Southern Baptists coming to your door and you're an Anglican? And the answer is no. Why? Because you're convinced that your form of love is the correct form of love, and whose business is it of somebody else to come in and tell you that your love is wrong? I think that was an affirmation from God. That, <laughs> that, was, that was divine applause coming in. <laughs> So if someone converts, I mean, you view that as a matter of the heart, no matter what they might tell you. I mean, your view is that it's it's really a matter of the heart. It's not really the sort of thing that should be argued about. Is that right? I don't see how you can make a compelling argument one way or the other. I've seen it a couple of times. I've heard more anecdotal information on this. So I suspect it's true based on both personal experience and anecdotal experience that missionaries have attempted to convert Jews by using proof texts. You know, if you just look at Isaiah 53 or whatever, Mm -hmm. and then this Jewish person who's now convinced encounters somebody else who says, oh, but you can read Isaiah 53 this way, or you can read it that way, or, you know, this minister who told you that Isaiah is predicting a virgin birth, well, Isaiah in the Hebrew says absolutely nothing about a virgin birth. And at that point, the person gives up this Christian confession because it it was based on a false planting. It didn't come from the heart. It was based on a false argument. That's where some of these arguments really get you into trouble. To use Jesus' parable of the sower image, it's it's based on rocky ground. One is not convinced by argument generally. One is convinced by what Christians would call grace. Grace is not something that somebody puts into you. Grace is something that comes from above. Again, it's the same thing as love. So if you attempt to make a rational argument as to why Jesus is Lord and Savior, somebody else is going to be able to come and make a rational argument why he's not. And both arguments are tedious. It's like saying, let me make an argument as to why you should fall in love with me. And I can make a pretty good argument. I am a splendid person. Uh, But at the the end of the day, you may not be there. And that's okay, because that type of argument doesn't work.
Yeah, as a philosopher of religion, I mean, I think I'm hearing the view that the value of religion does not primarily or only consist in whether the claims of it are true, but it consists in the role it plays in your life, how it connects you to community, how it improves your behavior, and things like that. I don't care whether somebody believes in the giant spaghetti monster. I care very much what people do. But if one wants to make a claim that Jesus is Lord and Savior, I think it behooves that person to read the New Testament and to understand the text both within its historical context and how it has been interpreted over time. Because if you claim to love someone or you claim to have trust, faith, which is what the Greek term pistis really means, is to have trust, confidence in someone, then you probably want to read the scriptures that gave rise to that theology in the first place. When Thinking About Religion returns, Dr. Levine and I discuss the issue of religious conversion and also common misconceptions about Judaism. I suppose that in some Jewish communities, especially more in the past, possibly than the present, you would have found the attitude that, look, you shouldn't go around encouraging Jews to study these books. It could potentially lead to conversion. If you don't hear the sales pitch, you're not going to buy the product, <laughs> right? So better they not hear the Madison Avenue sales pitch. Uh, you're coming along and, you know, hey, everybody come read this great sales pitch. And you're not concerned that it will harm in any way Judaism. But not because you're like, hey, that's okay, because their arguments are really lame and they're easy to refute, and here's my book about how to do that. It's not that. Some Jewish people would maybe have that approach. Your view is being exposed to this just makes me a better Jew and makes me more informed and makes me sort of appreciate a lot of things about Christianity. I mean, I take it you're not a big fan of conversion, particularly Jews converting to Christianity. So why isn't that a worry exactly? Wow, that was that was a host of motives you've just imputed to me that I don't necessarily hold. <laughs> oh no, set um, me straight. Um, conversion is always difficult because conversion, whether you convert from Judaism to Christianity, Christianity to Judaism, you're Baptist and you decide you want to become a Catholic, because it creates disruption in the household. And I'm very much concerned about what in Hebrew we would call shalom bayit, peace in the household. Hmm. Um, and I've seen families torn apart because of this. And a Presbyterian marries a Methodist, it's a mixed marriage. Where are the grandchildren going to be baptized? This is just very, very hard. People convert because they convert, because they have a new belief system. But then we have to worry about how's that going to affect the parents or sometimes the spouse or sometimes the children. I worry about that enormously. Uh, and I try in part through the work that I do to help Christian parents whose children have converted to Judaism. Well, the Jewish annotated New Testament can show them links between their Christian tradition and their child's choice of Judaism. The text works very well with intermarriages where people are trying to figure out, well, how can we come together on this? And we can explain in part 
why people have different views. And if you can understand your differences better, you're more able, I think, if, if not necessarily to come to some sort of a kumbaya moment where it's all good, at least we have a better understanding of why we, we disagree and then we can agree to disagree on, on informed matters. When it comes to Jews reading the New Testament, I don't think ignorance has ever helped anybody. I don't think it's very helpful to tell a Christian, hey, you're wrong and we're right, and we certainly don't do that. I think it's helpful in terms of showing respect. Moreover, I, as a Jew... God's against respect, sorry. God's just clapping. <laughs> you, take, you take this as very positive, and, you know, we need the rain. Um, I, as a Jew, want Christians to respect me as a Jew which means they need to know more about Judaism than, uh, you know, they saw a production of Fiddler on the Roof, or they noticed that there was a menorah up at Hanukkah time, or they're concerned about the state of Israel. To respect Jews, quad Jews, means to know something about Judaism as a people, about our history, about our tradition, our practices, our diverse theologies. I think Jews ought to show Christians the same respect which means we need to know something about the text that Christians call sacred, and we need to know something about how Christians have interpreted that text over time. I think it's a matter of respect. I think it's a matter of being informed. Uh, I think it's a matter of feeling free to ask questions. Why would I keep somebody else's sacred scripture away? Why would I keep somebody else's sacred scripture away from a group of people? That's just dumb. When I was a kid, I had an aunt who said to me at one point, you know, why are you studying that hateful text? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's anti-Jewish. It's terrible. And I said, have you ever read it? And she said, no, why would I read this hateful text? That's just ignorance. And that's not helpful. You're convinced that the more information, the better. You're not particularly concerned about the sales pitch. I mean, there's the well, sales pitch. You're the in, one who's talked about market value, and yeah. you're the one who's talked about sales pitching. That's not language I would use. Well, I mean, why not? I mean, there, <laughs> I mean, Christianity's always been conversionist in its uh, orientation, and as you've noted in uh, some of your writings or some talk of yours, I've heard the New Testament has some things about family and conversion that you're not too happy about. I think if I had a conversation with Jesus on family issues, where Jesus says, you know, you have to hate mother and father uh, in order to follow me, where Jesus pulls his followers away from their family. Think about James and John are in, in the fishing boat mending nets with their dad, and he says, come follow me, and they leave their dad with the nets, and they go. Peter takes off and follows Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, and I'm wondering, gee, what was Mrs. Peter thinking? And we know there's a Mrs. Peter because Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Again, conversion disrupts families. And I've just seen the pain that's happened in, in families that I know, where one person converts from, from one religion to another. That's just hard. And I think I would probably have some comments to make with Jesus about that. But knowing people who have converted and how happy they are in their new communities, I can understand that as well. Sales pitch? To the contrary. I didn't put this thing together and give up three years of my life and then another year and a half to do the second edition to make money. 
I did this because I want anti-Jewish teaching to stop, and this book can help it. I did it because I want Jews to be aware of our common history with Christianity, and I want both Jews and Christians to be aware of how this text has been interpreted in ways that have caused hurt. And one of the things that these annotated texts can do, whether it's the Jewish Study Bible or our Jewish Annotated New Testament, is show where the texts have been used over the centuries to cause harm and how they might be read in ways that would show graciousness and love and compassion. This is not a market pitch. This is good news. Are you falling in love with me yet? Oh, yeah. I mean, that already (laughs) happened. Um, I love to be argued with. I'm a philosopher. In your book, The Misunderstood Jew, you complain eloquently and at great length about misunderstandings of Judaism and even misunderstandings of the New Testament based on misunderstanding Judaism. Mm -hmm. And you comment that when you were an undergraduate student, you uncritically accepted a lot of these things and had to work your way out of them. Is this book something that you wish you had when you were still an undergraduate? (laughs) Um, Not only did I have these very ugly images of Judaism when I was an undergraduate, and and I don't think I actually got them from my faculty teachers, um, who were lovely. I think I got them from the books in the library and and the various comments that I was hearing in churches because I was listening to sermons a lot. But I also heard them in graduate school. Did I wish I had the Jewish annotated? I wish my faculty had the Jewish annotated. So they would have named these concerns in the first place and then attempted to to combat them or erase them. But these negative images were so much part of the culture that I think some of my faculty members thought, oh, well, nobody believes this anymore. And I think others thought, yeah, it's probably true. I think it's helpful. I think the teaching of Second Temple Judaism, the context of Jesus, has changed, certainly over the past 30, 40 years. You can flag certain watershed moments, um, like Ed Sanders' Paul and Palestinian Judaism, for example, great book from the 1970s that started that shift. The increasing numbers of Jews who who went into New Testament studies, that made a difference. Having Jews in the classroom makes a difference. And when I was in graduate school, I was the only one sitting at that New Testament seminar table. But it did cause faculty members to think, hmm, maybe I ought to rephrase this. For me, it goes back to that question of how do you know this? What is your source for this? And if I have half a dozen sources, Jewish sources, that tell me one thing, and then I have a Christian minister telling me something else, I'm inclined to say to that Christian minister, here I have all these sources telling me one thing, and you're telling me this other thing about early Judaism. On what is your view based? But that's often where prejudice comes from. These stories get told over the centuries. But prejudice against African-American people, prejudiced against immigrants, prejudiced against Muslims. We develop these stereotypes. We never bother to figure out where they came from in the first place. I've taught religious studies and philosophy of religion, but just for the average, maybe Christian person or person interested in religion who doesn't know about this, I mean, a lot of it is uh, all you know about Judaism is you read the New Testament and uh, focus on some negative passages, and you think Judaism is pretty much what's in what Christians call the Old Testament. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And, <laughs> and then uh, you're, you're wondering uh, how, how Jews make the temple sacrifices. And uh, there's also traditions of interpreting Paul as pretty harsh, his rejection of the law, which are somewhat disputed now. Mm-hmm. And there's a very good essay by uh, Paula Fredrickson in the, the back of this book no, about those disputes. It's a brilliant essay by Paula Fredrickson. It was. Yeah. It really was. I was really impressed. I was impressed by most of the essays, honestly. Good. But just, yeah, for a general person like... They're saying to themselves, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm not some kind of Nazi, I'm not a racist, so how could I have any substantial problem with how I think about Judaism? (laughs) I spend a lot of time in churches, and I'll do adult education programs, and sometimes I have the opportunity of doing workshops as well. And I will, if I have the time, I can't do it in a single, like, 50-minute adult ed, but if I've got people for a couple of days or for a full Saturday workshop... One helpful exercise is just to take a, a pencil and paper and, you know, every everything's safe. You know, what happens in the classroom stays in the classroom. And say, tell me 10 things you know about Judaism at the time of Jesus. And that tends to surface the difficulties. I, you know, I can also do the same thing in a synagogue. Setting. Can they come up with 10? <laughs> oh, easily. Um, and, and say to Jews, tell me 10 things you, th- you think you know about Christianity. Because we're, we're all carrying these various stereotypes. I think sometimes the problem is that it, the problem is a Christological one. It's a theological one. For the Christian, Jesus has to be not only fully God and fully human, but fully unique. And unique is a theological category. So if Jesus says something good, that has to come from Jesus himself. It cannot come from his historical context. And if Jesus represents everything that's good, then that historical context, by definition, has to represent everything that's bad, because otherwise Jesus is not unique. So I find in a number of cases where people who, I don't think they're anti-Semitic, I really don't, I don't think they're bigots, but they do believe that first century Judaism is hopelessly misogynist and Jesus invents feminism. And all first century Jews are militaristically inclined and Jesus invents some sort of pacifism, or at least detente that all Jews are completely xenophobic and Jesus invents universalism, that Jews think that God has become sort of distant, transcendent king who, who is inaccessible, and Jesus invents the loving Abba Daddy God who stands behind you with T-ball. Um, <laughs> and, and, and all these horrible stereotypes, that the law is this horrible burden, and Jesus says, the law is a horrible burden, and Jesus says, don't worry, be happy, and you know, just love God, love neighbor, and everything else is you know, copacetic. And these are just awful stereotypes of Judaism. Part of the problem is that Christians don't know their own Old Testament, so that when Jesus says the greatest commandment is love God and love neighbor, they don't know that's coming from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. They don't know that Leviticus 19 goes on to say you have to love the stranger who dwells among you because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. They don't know that when Jesus says you will always have the poor with you, that he's quoting Deuteronomy, which then goes on to say, so, you know, extend your hand to the poor, you have to take care of them. And they don't know that Judaism is not just the quote-unquote Old Testament, it's, it's the Old Testament as it's been interpreted through rabbinic lenses, through medieval commentary, through response, and on to, on to the present day. So, ignorance of Judaism creates ignorance of Jesus, and worse, it creates a negative image of Judaism over against which Jesus and then Paul are then plastered. And what that winds up doing is yanking Jesus out of his own history and thereby, theologically speaking, denying the Incarnation. At risk of offending you, let me try out one of my own stereotypes about Jewish people, Jewish sense of humor. I've always loved this about my Jewish colleagues in the university 
and uh, J Jewish people are overrepresented in comedy these days, and I don't think it's a modern thing. Uh, I think it goes way back. I think it's baked into the recipe somehow. So I picked up this book, The Jewish Annotated New Testament, you know, 70 Jewish scholars. All right, there's going to be some humor here. I mean, your own talks are peppered with humor. I mean, you just, you're, you're funny. Uh, and I'm reading this book, you know, I, I can't say I read all of it, but I, re I really dug in hard. I read quite a bit of it. And I'm like, man, where's, where's the fun in here? And I realized, you know, this is, this is very serious business. This is... This is a topic that's not to be joked around with. If you go to the Holocaust Museum, you don't expect to find any jokes there either. Uh, but I don't know, there's something deadly serious about all of this. And um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, it's just interesting. <laughs> um, it, Did you edit out any jokes? Uh, I don't think we had any jokes that came <laughs> into the commentary itself, but we did have a fair amount of laughter in the emails that went back and forth surrounding so the, the, the gloss that the, the readers don't see. If you want to see me being funny, um, you know, read my book on the parables. <laughs> okay. But an annotated Bible is its own genre. Yeah. And one generally plays by the rules of genre. Yeah. Well, I kind of wish it was like a movie where you get the outtakes and the bloopers. You know? <laughs> All the funny stuff you put in the emails and it didn't make it into the well, final draft. Well, you know, draft. 70 Jews walk into a bar <laughs> <I know. laughs> or something. Not not in a study Bible. Remember, too, that we have to work within word limit. Yeah. Um, so if I have an extra 25 words and I can say three more things about the historical context or joke, I think I'm going to go for the, the quality of yeah. the information rather than for the rhetorical humor. Yeah, I did notice the extreme discipline. And there, there was no wordy excursions here. In, oh, no, in and that's this. why it it's took all us in compacted. part so long. Because when you write to a scholar and say, I need 1,500 words on this topic, and you get an essay of, of 8,000. Yeah, great, here's 20 pages. How about that's that? That's right. And then, it, <laughs> then it, it falls to Mark and to me to say, okay, now how are we going to cut this in such a way that the author is going to accept what we have done? God's like in this interview. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> I love the stuff that I work on, and I think it's great fun. Now, I'm not saying that working on, say, anti-Jewish passages in the text is, you know, that's that's not a laugh a minute. But I do think that the parables um, are, are, many of them, are they're just, they're, they're humorous. I think there are stories in the scriptures of Israel that are just, they're, they're funny. Jonah is funny. Uh, much of Genesis is funny. The beginning of Judges is funny. I think Paul in this fool speech. I think that's just that's just great because Paul can use humor as a rhetorical device to get at his congregations. But what happens is we pick up the Bible and we we immediately become somber and sober, and we say, "Oh, John says Jesus wept, but nobody ever said Jesus laughed." I think Jesus had a good belly laugh on more than one occasion, and I want people to delight. In this material, because I delight in it, I can sometimes more over in a more serious vein if I want to talk about problematic New Testament interpretations and anti-Jewish interpretations. I find using humor to be helpful because if I can get people laughing along with me, they're more likely to accept the holes I'm going to poke in their stereotypes. But not in a study Bible. But not in a study Bible. That's that's the wrong place for it. Dr. Levine, thanks so much for talking with us. This has been great fun. Thank you very much. The 27 books of the Christian New Testament crucially revolve around the man Jesus of Nazareth, an astoundingly influential Jew. 
I have no doubt that conversations about how to understand those writings will be different because there are more Jewish scholars at the table. The essays in this book Dr. Levine mentioned about the first chapter of the Gospel according to John and about the views of Paul are profound and will be eye-openers to many readers. I think this book will, as intended, foster better understanding between Jews and Christians. Its other effects are unpredictable, but I'm curious to see what they'll be. This week's thinking music has been the track, Readers, Do You Read? by Chris Zabriskie. Be sure to check out the blog post for this episode at thinkingaboutreligion.org. There are links there where you can find out about this musical track and more about Dr. Levine and some of the topics discussed. This has been Thinking About Religion. Thanks for listening.